And we've been, this is the second week in our series, Everybody Knows That. And if you, if you think about that, that uh, phrase, everybody knows that, when it's said, sometimes you know, it's said with a bit of an edge, isn't it? It's, and what it means is, this truth is so obvious and it is so secure that if you don't know this, where have you been? You know, you, something is wrong with you. You are intellectually challenged. If you, it's so obvious. Everybody knows that. And the problem is that some things that everybody knows is presented that way. Some things that are presented as fact and accepted as fact, in fact, are not fact, right? We looked at that even last week. And the acceptance of it as such can be it's just damning. It's, it's wrong. It's destructive. There was, of course, a time before Galileo, you know, where, uh, of course, the earth is the center of the universe and the sun goes around the earth. I mean, everybody knows that. And then before... Columbus, right? Everybody knows that the earth is flat and you sail too far and whoa, you're in, you're in chill. Everybody knows that. But did you know that way back when everybody didn't know that? As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, that wasn't as widely as accepted as we, we think, this idea of the flat earth and falling off. But it's interesting that today everybody knows that back then everybody knew that the earth was flat. You can, everybody can know it and it can still be wrong. There are several propositions that are out there that are stated as everybody knows in our culture, and this is where we're getting with the series, that are, I believe, wrong. I believe are, are damning to our faith that you and I are subject to just because we live in the U.S., because we've got a screen, because we've got the Internet, because we've got teachers, because we've got news people. <clears throat> because we are here, we are hearing constantly. Everybody knows that. Things that are against our faith. And while we might say inside we don't agree, still those things are just kind of like pot shots at our faith and they whittle it away and they make it weaker and weaker and weaker. And so it's, sometimes it's good to challenge these things that everybody knows and say, really? Last week we looked at the idea that everybody knows that the Bible is you know, a book of myths and errors. And if you weren't here, you really, really need to get that message. You can grab a CD. You can download it or listen to it online or a podcast. You can check it out on, on YouTube. Uh, and it's, it really does start there because if the credibility of the Bible is, is shattered, then everything it might say is suspect as well. So you'll need to listen to that fascinating, fascinating message. Just a couple of things on that. Um, Clark Pinnock from McMaster University in Toronto. He says this, regarding the Bible. He says, There exists no document, talking about the Bible, from the ancient world, witnessed by so excellent a set of textual and historical testimonies. Skepticism regarding the historical credentials of Christianity is based upon an irrational bias. F.F. F. Bruce from Manchester University. He says, If the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond all doubt. But because it's not just secular writing, suddenly there's suspicion um, about it. Uh, last week, again, look at the Bible, listen to that message. Uh, but real important question is, what is the Bible all about? In, in Luke 24, if you remember, remember this picture, uh, two disciples on their way to Emmaus, Jesus had, had died, he, he, he supposedly rose, they heard these rumors, but uh, that couldn't have happened because everybody knows people don't rise from the dead, right? So they're, they're walking to Emmaus and all kind of sad, and Jesus joins them. Now their eyes are cloaked, they can't tell it's Jesus, but he says, what's the problem? And they tell him the problem, and he says, you guys are so slow to believe the Bible, the Old Testament, 
Because the whole Old Testament talks about me. talks about Jesus. And so he goes through and he says, he starts with Moses and the prophets, which was their entire Old Testament, and he unveils himself. And as Jesus shares with them the word, at the end of that dialogue, it says that their eyes are opened. And wow, wow. So the whole Bible talks about Jesus. You've got to ask yourself, um, who is Jesus? Now, our culture, of course, knows, right? Oh, Jesus. Everybody knows that Jesus probably didn't really exist. I mean, everybody knows that. You know, there was a Jesus, it's called the Jesus Seminar. It was real popular in the 80s and 90s. About 150 um, scholars and lay people. And what they did is they, they were supposedly on search for the historical Jesus. So they went through the Gospels. But these 150 people were going to vote as to whether or not they thought this passage or this verse or this paper could be about Jesus was really reflective of Jesus. And so they had this elaborate voting system, different colored beads. By the time these 150 guys got, vote, got done voting, they determined that Jesus did exist. But he was birthed by two normal people. He wasn't God. He didn't work any miracles. He didn't die for anybody's sin. He didn't rise from the dead. And these ideas, stories of people seeing him, it was just some visionary thing. It was nothing physical at all. And they went to seminaries and colleges and news, radio, media, churches all over the place proclaiming this story of Jesus. And so our culture, I mean, they've influenced substantially. So our culture has this mindset that everybody knows that Jesus probably didn't really exist. Or if he did, he was kind of like Santa Claus. You know, there's a real St. Nicholas. And he liked kids and gave gifts and stuff. But you spin that story enough times, and now you've got a, a 300-pound little man shimming down chimneys, and he's got bags of toys, and he hits every, every chimney in, in the world, you know, in, in one night. And, and, and see how the story is kind of... Bet you Jesus was just like that. Everybody knows. That if Jesus really was a historical figure, which we still doubt... He probably was just a nice, kind, religious man, kind of like Gandhi or Muhammad or, you know, the Buddha or, you know, it's just one of those guys. Just, 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 just another one of those guys. Just, it's, everybody knows that. Well, think about Jesus for a minute. Roughly one half of the world's population claimed to follow him. Uh, 600 AD, after 600 years after Jesus is gone, a Scythian monk comes on the scene and he says, you know, this idea of a calendar of constantly deciding what year it is based on the year that whatever king is reigning, I propose a change. Why don't we instead, instead of making a calendar based on the foundation of Rome, why don't we make it based on the incarnation of Jesus? And so from that point on, uh, all of history is is related to uh, the death of, of Jesus, the, the life of Jesus. Uh, calendar is not an issue of convenience. It's a theological statement. Uh, that's why you've got Caesar Nero dies in 68 AD in the year of our Lord. And Napoleon dies in 1821 in the year of our Lord. And Mao Zedong dies in 1976 in the year of our Lord. And every ruler, every powerful, famous person is, is determined, related based on where they fit in the timeline of Jesus' life. Uh, January 1st, according to John Ortberg, there's a reason why uh, uh, New Year starts on January 1st. Do you think about it? Because in Judaism, exactly eight days after a baby was born, the baby was circumcised and officially named. 
Well, January 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31. January 1 is when the name of Jesus officially came into the world. You know, Jesus, if Jesus was just a plain, if he didn't exist, or if he's just a plain ordinary person, then this has been the greatest hoax on the whole world has been duped by this. So we need to stop and look and say, oh, who was Jesus? First of all, was he a historical figure? Now, this is an important question. It's got to, obviously needs to start here. You know, in approximately 150 years from Jesus' time, there are 10 secular sources, it's non-Christian sources, non-Bible, anti-Christian sources, many of them, that talk about Jesus. 10 secular, non-anti-Christian sources that talk about Jesus within 150 years of his life. In that same time span, there are nine secular sources that talk about Tiberius Caesar, the Roman Caesar. These are are the the sources that talk about Jesus. you got Tacitus, he wrote in 52. Uh, Lucina Samosota wrote in the hundreds. Flavius Josephus, Roman historian, wrote uh, 85 to 95. Suetonius wrote in 120. Pliny the Younger wrote in A.D. 112, Tertullian 197, Thallus wrote in 52, Flagon wrote in 50, somewhere between 50 and 90, Justin Martyr wrote in 150, then you got the Jewish Talmuds. Now, these are secular sources written around the time of Jesus that talk about Jesus. Now, if you took out Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, take away the Bible for a minute, just look at these sources and say, what do these sources tell me about Jesus? You know what these sources tell you about Jesus? They say that Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. These secular sources, most of them anti-Christian, says that Jesus lived a virtuous life. They say Jesus was a wonder worker. He did miracles. No one's sure exactly how he did these things, but he pulled them off. These secular sources say he had a brother named James. He was acclaimed to be the Messiah. These secular sources say he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified on the eve of the Jewish Passover. Darkness and an earthquake occurred when he died. His disciples believed that he rose from the dead. His disciples were willing to die from their belief. Christianity spread as far as Rome. His disciples denied Roman gods and worshipped Jesus as God. This is, you know, this is fascinating. This is just like the New Testament, isn't it? I mean, these guys were just writing history. It's amazing how close it sounds to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If if you deny the historicity of Jesus, this is amazing. You have to deny all of history from this time because this is one of his his existence is one of the most secure facts of history. Now you still might not buy into the whole he's the God and the miracle. You, You might not go down that road, but if you just go with secular history, yeah, I guess he was a person. I guess he was there. Listen, F.F. Bruce, he says, Some writers may toy with the fancy of a Christ myth, but they do not do so on the ground of historical evidence. The historicity of Christ is as axiomatic for an unbiased historian as the historicity of Julius Caesar. It is not the historians who propagate the Christ myth theory. This is Encyclopedia Britannica, 1985. Okay, this is what Encyclopedia Britannica, I don't think it's a Christian organization, says these independent accounts, and so talking about these Ten uh, secular sources regarding Jesus. These independent accounts prove that in ancient times, even the opponents of Christianity never doubted the historicity of Jesus, which was disputed for the first time and on inadequate grounds by several authors at the end of the 18th, during the 19th, and at the beginning of the 20th century. Encyclopedia Britannica. Uh, to reject 
Anyone who says Christ did not exist just doesn't understand history. They're no doubt parroting what everybody else knows, what some teacher saw, some newscaster, somewhere that they, something they read in the paper, but not, not fact at all. Now, understanding the uh, uniqueness of, of Christianity is fascinating because every religious system, every philosophical system is based on the teaching of their founder. Right, Marxism teaching of Marx, and, and Islam teaching of Muhammad, and, and uh, Confucianism the teaching of Confucius. But Christianity is not based on the teachings of Christ. It's important we understand this: that we're not Christians because our heart resonates with the stuff he said. You know, it was kind of cool, or we really like this thing he said over here, or it, you know, it's a better system than the rest of them. I think, or or because I grew up this way. We're not. Followers, though we believe in the teachings of Jesus, and we follow him, we're not followers of Christ because of that. We're followers of Christ because of who he was and what he did. Really, really strong differentiation. Who he was and what he did. That's what gives his teachings credence. So you have to ask yourself, okay, who was he? And everybody knows, right, though, that if Jesus did exist, he was just a good... Moral kind of Christian, moral teaching person. He was just a nice religious guy, if everybody knows that. But who did Jesus say he was? This is important, because I don't think he gives you that freedom. Um, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. What are you saying? What? 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 He's talking with the Pharisees. Next text. And he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, keep in mind, Abraham lived in 2000 BC. This this is going on right here around 30 AD. And so the Pharisees said, Well, you're not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you've seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. When he says, I am, fascinating. Exodus chapter 3, you know the story. Moses is, is talking to God via the burning bush. And God says, go back to Egypt. And Moses says, who, will, who, will, who can I say sent me? I can't go on my own authority. They don't like me there. And God says, you tell them, I am sent you. I am is God's personal name. And the Jews wouldn't even say this name because they were afraid that if they said this name, somehow they would be taking the name of the Lord God in vain, which is obviously against the uh, third commandment. So they couldn't do that. They wouldn't even say this. Jesus not only said it, but claimed to be it. And so, of course, they picked up stones to stone him. What? What? This, 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 this normal, kind, good guy is claiming to be God? It goes, it goes on. Next, next text. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, we've heard this so many times in church, it doesn't ring anything with us anymore. But, but let's just say that I came to church one day. And I said, listen, y'all, I want to get to heaven. That's cool. That's a good thing. No one gets there unless they come through moi. You want to get there? You got to get the only way you're getting there. Anyway, anyone in the world is going to get to heaven. <laughs> it's through me. What are you thinking? Are you crazy? What are you an idiot? Who, who do you think you are? Jesus has the gall to say this? Who does he think he is? It says that Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection, the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives in me by believing in me will never die. What? A, what? What? If a, if a normal man said this to you, wouldn't you? What? 
Jesus says this kind of stuff all over the New Testament. This is the most polarizing thing about him from the very beginning. Who was he? He was not going to let anybody think he was a good teacher. That's never, never the question. He's claiming to be God. And so you were either believing he was God in the New Testament from the beginning, or you were, you were not. That's the issue. You know what? No other religious leader claims to be God. Well, Muhammad doesn't claim to be God, and Confucius doesn't. And then the Buddha, the way we would understand it, no other religious leader claims such a thing. Jesus, though, makes this claim. And you say, wow. Yeah, well, that's, anyone can kind of make that, that claim. But C.S. Lewis is going to let us know that, that anyone who makes that kind of a claim, or Jesus making that kind of claim, one of three things are true about him. Okay? This is fact that everyone knows he's a great religious leader, a kind, nice person. That's just not even an option. Because he's making such terrible claims, or heavy claims, he's either A, a liar, he knows that these things aren't true about him, but he's saying them anyway. And if you think about this, this idea that he's God, if he's not God and he knows he's not, people, by believing that, were going to die. How many Christians have died over the centuries? I mean, millions of Christians have been martyred. Their families have been ruined. Their, their kids, everybody is, because they believe this. Jesus knows this isn't true about him. And he leads other people astray, deceiving them to, to believe this, even though it's going to take their own life. That's not a good moral teacher. That's wickedness incarnate is what that is. If Jesus is a liar. Or if he's not a liar, maybe then he's just a lunatic. You know, he really thought he was God. History's been speckled with people who think these kind of things. Maybe he's always thought he was God, but he really wasn't. He's just out of touch with reality, psychotic. A psychotic person is not a good moral teacher. They're not thing that, no one that you would want to follow believing everything that they say. They're someone who's sick, who needs help. They don't need, um, they need people help them. They don't help other folk. Uh, you need to know, Jesus never manifested any kind of insanity. When he was uh, in some very high-pressure situations, he was always very balanced. He was always very emotionally stable. Jesus would be challenged by the PhDs, the Harvard PhDs of the time, the, the, the Pharisees, the most learned, most educated, most intelligent, or, or most uh, well-informed men, challenging Jesus. And Jesus always responded with answers that amazed them, that silenced them. Now, this is the most amazing thing to me about Jesus. Because if, if, if you ever come across people with this God delusion who think they're God, what it is, is, is all the world rotates around me. Everyone's supposed to serve me because I'm God and I'm God and what I say and, what, and who and everyone follows me. But this is not the way Jesus was. Jesus said, Scripture said, you know, the, the, the foxes of the earth, they have holes. And the birds of the air, you know, they've got nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus never asked for anybody's money or anybody's anything. He came to serve and to heal and to comfort and to ultimately die for everybody he came to give. And the coolest thing about this to me is this is the kind of God you'd want. Don't you, wouldn't you want God to be like this? Not a God that's asking me, commanding and being mean and threatening, but a God who's going to take all of who he is and to love and to give himself, this is who Jesus claimed, this is what he did. This is what he was. So, Jesus was either a liar, or he was a lunatic, or he was actually God. And I think even some of the songs we just sang, this has got huge implications for us. Were we just singing about a dead liar that we really think he's incredible? Were we just singing about a dead lunatic that we think he's wonderful? We have nothing better to do with our, our time? Or we say, he really was God. That's what he claimed to be. Now, 
Jesus, if scripture is true, if this is right, that he really was God, and he created us, he the one who gave us common sense. Jesus never says, just buy what I'm saying. Okay, I know it's a stretch and all. Just kind of trust me on this. Just, I'm God, okay? just trust. He doesn't go down that road. We would expect, if he's God, that somehow he would fit the bill. I'm not even sure what that is. Well, a couple of things. One is Jesus is very unique in, in this idea of fulfilled prophecy. Amazing, amazing stuff. You know, uh, there are about 300 times in the Old Testament where they're looking forward to a Messiah. They mention Messiah's coming. There are anywhere between 61 and 109 major prophecies about Jesus. Whatever, that's why there's such a big gap because who, who wants to say what is major? But between 61 and 109 major prophecies about Jesus. Here's just eight of them, okay? That uh, the Messiah would be from the seed of Abraham. That's Genesis 12. Scripture says the Messiah would be from the tribe of Judah, that's Genesis 49, that he'd be from the family of King David, that's 2 Samuel 7, that he'd be born in Bethlehem. Now, keep in mind, Bethlehem, that's, that'd be like saying Jesus was born in McCain, you know, just like a nothing sort of place. And you're going, we around here are kind of okay with McCain, we know about it. But, you know, if you told your, your relatives in Idaho, McCain, they'd be going, what? what? But, but yeah, Micah 5.2 says, no, Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. Really? Bethlehem? Uh, Zechariah 11 says he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver and betrayed by a friend, by the way. Messiah would, be, would die by crucifixion. Uh, Psalm 22. This is amazing because crucifixion hadn't been invented yet when Psalm 22 was written. It would be hundreds and hundreds of years before, before crucifixion was even invented. And yet, Psalm 22 depicts the crucifixion. Messiah would die at crucifixion. He would die among thieves. He'd be buried in a rich man's tomb. Those are Isaiah 53. You've got 109 like this, very specific. Uh, Peter Stoner, mathematician, has figured out what would what are the odds of one guy by chance just fulfilling eight of these? Just fulfilled eight of them. He says that would be one in ten to the seventeenth power. That's something like one in one hundred thousand trillion. You say, well, how big is that? Josh McDowell says that's that's this big. You take the state of Texas. And you fill the entire... You've been through Texas. Texas is a big old place. Right? It just goes on forever and ever. And, ever. And, and you fill it two feet high with silver dollars from border to border to border to border. You take one of those silver dollars and you put a little red dot on it, throw it out there, mix it in there somewhere, blindfold a guy, send him into... Like he needs a blindfold. Blindfold him anyway. Just make matter. Send him into Texas and the very first dollar he picks up is the one with the red dot. That is the odds of one person by chance fulfilling just eight of these. Uh, mathematicians have said, well, what would it take for someone to by chance fulfill 16? Well, so that would be 1 in 10 to 40, I think it's 43rd power. That's a decimal point followed by 44 zeros and a 1. That's just 16. Can you imagine, what are the odds of fulfilling 109 of these things by chance? It's statistical. It's an an impossibility. Uh, It's amazing. There's no other religious leader anywhere that claims that there were prophecies about him before he came on the scene. No one's even making that claim that there were prophecies about them. But yet Jesus, there were prophecies about him and he fulfilled them. Miraculously so. Jesus is unique in, in also in what he did, his, his works. You know, this is, uh, again, everybody knows that uh, uh, if somebody's really God, they should prove it. And so so you would, what would you expect God to do? Well, so Jesus comes on the scene. He turns water into wine, walks on the sea, he multiplies bread, he calms the storm, 
just speaks to the hey, storm, quiet, stops. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? Snow, go away, take care of it. That'd be a nice thing. Instantaneous is healings. Uh, blindness. Remember when, when the guy's healed who's blind and they drag him, before, and there's several healed blind, but they drag him before, before the uh, uh, elders, the, the uh, Pharisees, Sanhedrin. And so they, they, they challenge this guy. Who was this guy who healed you blind? And he says, I don't know. And they get back and forth a little bit. And then the Pharisees say, well, we know this guy's probably had a demon. And the blind guy says, whoa, whoa, hang on. No one's ever been healed by blindness before. Only God can do something like that. Everybody knows only God can heal blind people. This had, he had to be somehow connected to God. He heals blindness. Paralysis, gnarled limbs, leprosy, deafness, healing the mute, casting out demons, raising the dead even. And we could, if we kept going with all of his healings, we would have, I think, 40 or 50 different things there. It would just be a huge old, old list. Now, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. This is a fascinating text. He says, I and the Father are one. And again, his Jewish, Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him because you don't say that. That's blasphemy, right? And so Jesus says, listen, I know it's a stretch. Anybody can say that. That's why I've been doing all these miracles, things that you know can only come from God. I've been showing you. So he says, so for which of these do you stone me? And it's just fascinating. They don't deny that he's done these things. They don't say, well, you really didn't do these things. They said, well, we're not stoning you for any, any of those. <clears throat> you know, those well, well we didn't, we're, not, we're not sure how you, but we're not stoning you for those. But because you, a mere man, claim to be God. He says, I'm doing the things that God would do. What other proof do you need? So they, they were not interested in any proof. They just knew, because everybody knows. This guy can't be God, because, you know, Jesus, he just was not God. Everyone knows that. When you start off with that, and you sink in, it doesn't matter what kind of facts or what kind of um, evidences come your way. You're, you're, not going to, you're not going to see it. You know, you need to know, too, that no other religious leader, Muhammad, Confucius, they, they never claimed to do miracles. There are no miracles attributed to any of them. They didn't even claim it. But Jesus claimed it. And you need to keep in mind what's written in Scripture, even in secular sources, is that, yeah, he did some of the... We're not sure how, but he did those kind of things. This wasn't just a spun-off tale later on. Jesus also is unique in his death. This is just really huge. Because, I mean, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. Okay, that's, sorry for bringing that bad news on you. But we're not born saying, you know what? I came in this world to die. The purpose for my life is to die. That's what, you know, we're going to get there one day and we're going to die, but hopefully we're going to have a lot of cool stuff that happens between there and then. And, and it's just something you've got to deal with. Jesus said, my death, this is why I came, was to die. In, in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days rise again. He says, you guys, you're not going to... Down the road, I'm just letting you know this now, so when it happens, it doesn't totally catch you off guard. It still kind of floored him. But I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise from that. He's telling him this quite some time before it happens. Mark chapter 10, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. He said, we're going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. and They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. 
hand him over to the Gentiles. This has always intrigued me because uh, under the system, the political system, Jewish underneath Rome, the Jews really didn't have the power to enforce any capital offense things. Um, some occasions they did, though. Uh, remember, they picked up stones to stone the woman caught in adultery. They uh, did stone Stephen. Uh, I've wondered, how come they didn't stone Jesus? They tried it a couple times. Remember, we read even this morning. Well, here they had him. Why didn't they just drag him out in a back alley somewhere and stone him? How come they had to hand him over to the Gentiles? Because Psalm 22, Isaiah 53 lets us know that the death of the Messiah had to be a bloody death. He had to be crucified. It was a picture of the, the Passover lamb whose blood was, was shed. These guys were not as much in control as they thought they were. They were fulfilling, living out uh, prophecy. And so Jesus says, John 10, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. Well, what's he talking about there? Well, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. If you were to talk to the Unification Church, the Moonies, what they believe about Jesus is that he came and he was supposed to set himself up as king, but he failed to take into consideration the uh, re- rejection of everybody. And he just, they will say Jesus failed in his mission, and so he was killed. So that's why Sun Young Moon had to come by and do, and do it, but he didn't do it either. But um, they say he, he, just, he just failed. Uh, Jesus says, no one takes my life. No, I didn't. I lay it down. That's why he's when he's in Gethsemane. In John chapter 12, he says, now, he's praying here. He says, now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He's thinking about, I'm going to be crucified. Should I say, Lord, Father, save me from this? He says, no. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. I was born for this time. This, this death, this crucifixion. This is why I'm here. So I can pray to be delivered from that. This is why I'm here. And so they're in Gethsemane. And remember this, the, the detachment of soldiers come to take Jesus away. Could be up to 200 soldiers. They have to get Jesus. They know that crowds are often around him. Well, that's one of the reasons why they came at night. But if crowds are there, they have to be ready. And so you've got all these trained warriors there to get, to get Jesus. And Peter, Peter pulls his little dagger and starts slashing away trying to defend Jesus. And uh, Jesus kind of yells at him. He says, Peter, do you think... I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Jesus was completely in control. No other religious leader, any big thing made about their death. No, their, their, their death is mansion and, and pushed to the side. But, but, but with Jesus, it is the central focus of Christianity. Because, and you've got to get to this, because every other religious system, they, they can all be spelled D-O, do. You've got to do this, and you've got to do that, and you've got to do the other thing, and you've got the pillars here, and you've got, you got all the stuff you have to do. And if you do them all, then maybe you'll get in, maybe, maybe you won't. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. It's done, and it's right here on the cross. It was this idea. You see, we're not, not getting to, to, to God one day in this earth, this life, or beyond uh, because we haven't done enough good things. It's because we've, we've sinned. We've done some bad things. And you know in your own life, if somebody has really hurt you bad, yeah, they can even apologize and try to make it up. But things, some, sometimes things in the past can never be made up. What's happened has happened. Sin is sin. It's wrong. And so we're stuck. We're in a mess. And so God sent Jesus to die 
for my bad things, my sin, and yours. It's, it's, called, it's called grace. The significance of Jesus' death, he alone, he blows away all other religious leaders, and that I know is not politically correct, but reality is not always politically correct. Jesus is also unique in his resurrection. Obviously, if you were to go to the tomb of Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius, or, uh, their remains will be in their tomb. None of them have any kind of claim that they ever rose from the dead. They didn't claim it. Their followers never claimed it. Jesus, different deal. They, they, they took Jesus. They whipped him. Uh, the flogging almost killed him. Uh, skin on his back, backside, back of his legs, laying in, in ribbons. They, they prayed him up. He, he lost so much blood that he fainted on the way to Golgotha trying to carry his cross. Nails through his hands, his feet, arms yanked out of socket so he couldn't pull himself up and breathe. Spear into his side, pierced his heart. Then after he died, according to John 20, what Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus do is they mummify him. They take a hundred pounds of spices and, and, and linens and they wrap the body with linens and then this gummy spice, they cover it over it, wrap it again and they, they, they mummify him. Then they, they put him in, in a tomb. They dig a ditch really right before the front of the tomb and they pull, roll in this this two-ton, one-and-a-half to two-ton boulder just to seal the tomb. So Jesus is all dead, buried, entombed. And then the Pharisees start thinking. They remember this stuff Jesus said, and they said, when he was around, he said he was going to die, and he said he was going to rise from the dead. So they go to Pilate, and they say, Pilate, we've got to do something about this because if he if something happens and someone takes the body or something, it's going to make us all look very bad. So we've got to, we've got to make sure this doesn't happen. And so, so Pilate says, okay, well, we're going to do two things. First of all, we're going to put a Roman seal on it, which wasn't a big old thing, but what it was is this, uh, if you broke the Roman seal, it was, a sign, it was capital punishment. It was Rome saying, this is here, this is the way it's going to be. Anyone who would dis-Rome, it's all, you don't mess with the Roman seal. On top of that, Pilate said, you go make the tomb as secure as you can. Here's some guards. Anywhere between 8 and 16 uh, uh, West Point-type grads, guys that have uh, killed many other people in battle. They were armed. They were trained. Two things about them. They, they knew that if any guard fell asleep on his duty, it was instant death. They would take his clothes. They would set him on fire. They would burn him in them. If, if he was with a unit that did it, the whole unit was dead. So it gives these guys lots of incentive to keep each other awake. And yet, somehow, the body gets gone with all that. And so the, the apostles go out preaching it, and these guys are going, oh, we knew it. So look, at, they, they come up with a solution. Next text. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the elders a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say. His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews this very day. There's just so much wrong with this, is there? I mean, if they're sleeping, how do they know who stole the body, right? Oh, it's those disciples. How are you? I mean, if you're sleeping, you don't know. Aliens, who knows? So you don't know. So how do they get all we know, even though we were sleeping? What did they, they keep in mind? The, the apostles, these, these guys at this point in history were scaredy cat guys. These are guys that ran away from Jesus in Gethsemane because they were afraid. These are guys that are hanging out in Jerusalem behind a closed locked door, afraid. What would have given them the impetus to go down and, and try to make sure all these guys were asleep and then push this two-ton boulder out of the ditch 
and drag this body out. They tie up all these guys with their nets and just kind of run off. Who knows? What, what did they do? And then they went out and they told everybody that he rose. Every single sermon in the book of Acts has one thing in common, and it is Christ rose from the dead. Those 12 guys, 11 of them would die martyrs' deaths because of that one message. The 12th guy would be, die in prison because of that one message, that Christ rose from the dead. Now, Tom Anderson, he says, with an event so well public, by the way, he's the uh, former trial lawyer, president of Trial Lawyers Association of California. He says, with an event so well publicized, don't you think that it's reasonable that one historian one eyewitness, one antagonist would record for all time that he had seen Christ's body. The silence of history is deafening when it comes to the testimony against the resurrection. What he's saying is all that the Pharisee people had to do at this point. When everyone's saying, Jesus rose, it's just drag out the corpse and say, well, well, what is this? What is this? He didn't rise. Look what we've got. If they had the body, that's the, that would have been easy enough. It would have silenced everything. All the crowds would have went home. There'd be no Christianity. There'd be no one following a dead Messiah. There'd been lots of, of Messiahs that ended up dying and staying dead. But, but, but this, this movement took off. So you say, well, 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 why? And what he's saying is all you needed was one guy to present the body, and nobody was able to do that. We say, well, yeah, but everybody knows. Everybody knows that, that people don't rise from the dead, right? Well, Flavius Josephus didn't know this. Josephus was not a Christian. He was a, a Jewish historian hired by Rome. Rome would hire historians in all their, their empire, locale, to, to write the histories of their areas. You could not make up stuff or spin stuff. This was history for the Roman government. If you got caught doing that, it was curtains for you. So Josephus is not a believer. And he, he's, writing within, he's writing about 90 A.D., and this is what, this is in the antiquities of the Jews, this is what he says. He says, there was about this time, Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. He was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day. This again, this is, this is anti-Christian or non-Christian testimony here, by the way. Uh, as the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him and the tribe of Christians so named after him are not extinct to this day. You say, well, it's, everybody knows. People don't rise from the dead, right? Right? Dr. Simon Greenleaf thought he knew that. He's a royal professor of law at Harvard. Got very tired of, of students challenging him on the resurrection of Jesus. And so he took the, the laws of jurisprudence that, that he was teaching at Harvard. And he said, I'm going to apply this to the resurrection of Christ and show these guys once for all. When he did that, he went 180. And he writes this, this big, long treatise. But this is one of the things he says. He says, it was impossible that the apostles could have persisted in affirming the truths they had narrated had not Jesus Christ actually risen from the dead. He would go on to say that there is no other event in all of history that according to the, the laws of jurisdiction of evidence uh, would find more confirming. So the, 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 the resurrection is one of the most confirmed events in history if you apply the, the laws of evidence. 
Thomas Arnold, historian from Oxford. He says, I've been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine and weigh the evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. Uh, Lord Darling is a former uh, Chief Justice in uh, England. He says, there exists such overwhelming evidence, positive and negative, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world would fail to bring a verdict that the resurrection story is true. You say, well, those guys were all Christians. Well, yeah, because you know what? They, they They didn't start off this way, but they studied this and they got to a point where they realized Christ really did rise from the dead. He really is who he said he was. Any non-biased, intelligent person at that point, when they come to the evidence of the facts, they would say, this really is true. I'm going to align my life with reality, not with illusion, not with things that aren't true. And so they came to that point. And I, I believe that anybody unbiased who would examine the evidence would come to that same place as many, many, many over the years have. You know, in Paul, in Philippians 2, he talks about a day, an incredible day, when because Jesus, who was uh, God, who fulfilled prophecy, who did the works of God, who claimed to be God, who was unique in his death and his resurrection, because of, of that, it says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That's not just some every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's talking about a day, this incredible event, when all of mankind who's ever lived will be there and will be on their knees saying, Alf, I guess you really were God. Uh, Muhammad's going to be there, every knee, right? Confucius will be there. Buddha will be there. The popes will be there. The Dalai Lama will be there. Uh, Billy Graham and Billy Sunday will be there. Uh, name somebody. Ben Roethlisberger and Brent Farr and Queen Elizabeth will be there. Queen Elizabeth will be there on her knees. You'll find, uh, you'll find there Ellen and Oprah and uh, Rosie and Taylor Swift will be there. And uh, you need to know that you'll be there too. Everybody you've ever known will be there. Everybody you've never known will be there around the throne. But you've got to know this, that when we're there, we're not all in the exact same place. Some folk are saying, I guess you really are. I guess this is really true. I guess you really are God. And they are there to meet him as their judge. And then there are folk who are saying, I knew this was true. It's not the first time they're saying this. Uh, and they are there meeting him as their savior. And you've got to know the only difference between those two groups of people on that day, the appointment that every one of us is going to be there for, the only difference is what you thought about Jesus this side of death. And so let me ask you, have you ever gotten to a place where you recognized him as who he is and you've given your life over to him? Scripture would call that being saved, being born again, lots of different... Uh, but you've realized this is God He's the one who, who, who created me and died for me and running my life by myself alone. Lord, it's yours. Forgive me. Thank you for dying for me. Have you ever been there? 
Because if you haven't right now, it might be your, your day. If you close your eyes and follow me in a moment of prayer. Because he who created us, he who came to this earth to show us God desires so much that we would follow. And right now between uh, just you and him, you can pray in your heart to him. He hears, he knows. And say, Lord, thank you for being God, for creating me, for loving me so much. Lord, would you forgive me? I messed up so much. I give you my life. Thank you.